If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. So welcome back to the podcast. Ed, the Protestant, and I are sitting out here in the forest, the piney woods on the shores of the Great Lakes, and uh, surrounded by, uh, well, piney woods and uh, and forest creatures and uh, chirping birds and uh, uh, literally God only knows what else is hiding right, <laughs> in the trees. Right. We feel, it feels miles from civilization. It does, and it feels like anything could happen, you know. Right. So I, I keep waiting for uh, Squatch, yep. Sasquatch to come. Yep. So well, we, we might see a bear. We might, we see. might see. I, I still am hoping. I have an existential question about Sasquatch, and that is if, <laughs> if he doesn't believe in me, right. he see me. Right. Right. Like, I mean, right. what if we mutually disbelieve in each other? But we're both really there. We just, neither of us believes in each other. He goes back to the other Sasquatches and they say, no way. No way. Right. We don't believe that. You don't have any Show proof. me. <laughs> he comes back here. No, there was a, there was, they there were, were there. two. Yeah, they they were, were there. there. Well, anyway, they were sitting there and they were talking about Catholicism and that's what we're doing today. <clears throat> so Ed, here we are and we're, it's time for another conversation about the Catholic faith. So I think you have a question for us today. I do. I always have questions. They're endless. You know, I see the Bible differently now in light of what I've learned about apostolic tradition. And I just always thought that the Bible was this, it was, it was this mysterious God's word. It just appeared. I never questioned it. I never thought about where it came from. I knew that some, some guys got together and decided, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the Catholics were always the ones with those extra books. Mm. And I always wondered why they put those in there and why mm. they had them in there. And it was weird to me and sort of... I, I mean, I remember hearing the same thing when I was a And it almost sort of Christian. felt... Cult- Where the Catholics because they added right. extra books to the right. Bibles. And I always thought, well, they put those in there so they could make certain claims. And But the whole thing is, this whole argument is a little bit of a house of cards. The longer I think about it, I think, well, where, where did this come? You know, now I'm learning where the Bible came from and where, who put it together and how long it went on. And now that I'm aware that it was several hundred years and, and so forth and so on, now I'm really curious about it because now my fear of it has gone away a little bit. But I want to know, you know, so I just have a, a list of the basic questions. How, how did the difference come about? The Protestant Bible must be a relatively recent thing, right? Okay, yeah. so um, all, all right. that. Well, it's interesting that you asked the question because we had a listener uh, send us an email and we, I, we, I love getting mail from the listeners. So please email your comments and questions. It really means a lot as we do this just to get feedback from you. And uh, you can email me at greg at consideringcatholicism.com or consideringcatholicism at gmail.com. Both of them will get to us. But um, we had a listener named Cody who wrote in and said, uh, I was wondering if you could do an episode discussing the deuterocanonical books of the Bible. (laughs) Uh, they're all, it's all new to me and there's so much hearsay and garbage information he says out there. And as I have begun to investigate Catholicism, I've got Protestants giving me flack about, you know, the Catholic Bible. There's the Bible and then there's the Catholic Bible. Right. There's the Bible and then there's there's the Catholic Catholic Bible that has all these extra books that have been added into it. So, so that's what we're going to kind of delve into today. All right. Yes, and I am going to try before the day is out to use the term deuterocanonical in a sentence. Yeah, I think you just did, but okay. <laughs> After this. So, yes. uh, with your wife, I, if you, right. I, I may give you bonus points. I'll buy you another pizza at the gas station <laughs> or gas station pizza from down the road here. Right. If you can find a way to naturally work yeah, that. Yeah, legitimately. Legitimately work that into a conversation with your wife. So, so, in other words, hey, honey, get a load of the deuterocanonical books. That's not, that doesn't count. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. Yeah, okay. okay, so. So what's the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant Bibles? Well, okay, first of all, with regards to the New Testament, 
there's no difference and there's no dispute between the Catholic and the Protestant New Testaments. So both Catholics and Protestants recognize 27 books. And of course, I'm using books in quotation marks because some of these are, say, the letters of Paul, which is right. you know, more than not really a book, it's a letter, but we call them books. There are 27 books in the New Testament for all Christians, okay? Um, they're, they're all written in Greek by 15 or 16 authors, depending on who you attribute authorship of a couple of the epistles to. So there's the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the, the book of Acts. There's the epistles of Paul and some of the others and Revelation, okay? 27. Right, right away, I didn't know that the Catholics books were not New Testament. I would have thought. No, yeah, so. no, no. Catholics, Protestant, Orthodox, everybody agrees to the 27 books of the New okay. Testament, okay? In the first centuries, okay, so right after Jesus, you know, 100, 200 years after Jesus, there were other Christian writings floating around the Roman Empire, okay? okay. Other epistles and things written by Christian writers, which some of which the early church can, some of which the early church considered, you know, should this be included in the New Testament or not? Right. Uh, and for various reasons, they were rejected as canonical, meaning to be included in right. canon of scripture. And these 27 were settled on as being the 27 authoritative books of the New Testament. Okay. Uh, there, there was a consensus on these in the Jeff die around the year 65. John may have died as late as 90, maybe. Uh, but in those last decades of the first century and in the first decades of the second century, generally the churches of the Roman Empire kind of came to consensus that these 27 books were authoritative. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it was finally made official. There was a council of all of the world's bishops called by a pope in the city of Rome, Council of Rome in 385. That long? Okay, AD. Well, yeah, but what they were doing is basically putting on paper, making official what had been accepted for 300 years. Okay, right. right like, right. so they thought, they, all right, once and for all now, we're going to make this official and sign it and put a stamp on it and say, these are the official 27. But they didn't pick 27 in 385. AD and 385, they were basically acknowledging right. what the churches right. had agreed to over the last 300 years and, 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 and sort of documenting it. And then that canonical list of those 27 books was reaffirmed a hundred years later at a council in Ephesus, uh, uh, several councils in the middle ages up to uh, the 16th century where multiple councils of the church confirmed those 27 books. Okay? Mm -hmm. You with me? I am. That's the New Testament. I am. Now, the difference between the Protestant and Catholic Bibles is in the Old Testament books. Okay? So, at the time of Jesus, okay, so when Jesus and Peter and James and John were running around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is turning, you know, loaves and fishes into, into lunch for 5,000 people and all that. At that time... And then throughout the life of the early generations of the church, the Jews and early Christians recognized the Old Testament, right. what they would have called the Old Testament, or we call the Old Testament, as having 46 books. Oh, okay? instead of 39. For, yeah, 46. Okay, so time of Jesus, apostles, early church, everybody was operating with 46 books. Right. Okay. And those books are divided into sort of three categories in, in Judaism, the, the law, so like the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, and so forth, right. the prophets, and then a third grouping of Old Testament books called the writings. So think of things like Psalms and Proverbs and right. Song of Solomon and a couple of history books like Ruth and Esther. Yep. These were considered the writings. Okay. All right. Now, most early Christians, this is a super important point to understand this. Most early Christians, in fact, most Jews living around the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus couldn't read Hebrew any more than we can read Latin. Okay. Right? right. It was kind of an ancient language. Of course, there were scholars who could read it, rabbis who could read it, just in the same way we have people who can read Latin. Right. But the average Jew and the average Christian spoke and read Greek, which is why the New Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, were written in 
Greek because that was the universal language at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Okay. With me? Yep. Okay. So they used not the Hebrew versions of the Old Testament, but a Greek version of the Old Testament that had been around since 250 BC. Oh. Okay. So two and a half centuries before Jesus, the Jews had translated a group of 72 Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into a Greek translation of it. Like you might say in the way that the King James version was when the Latin Bible was translated right. in English or something, right? Right. So they had translated it into Greek and that version of the Old Testament in Greek was called the Septuagint. Heard that word. Yep. It means the 70 because it was supposedly 70 or 72 scholars who had translated it. Okay. Yeah. Thing to fix in your mind is 250 BC, 250 years before Christ. Okay. Yep. And that version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, had 46 books in it. Okay. Or eventually it did because there were a couple of books that got added around the year 150. Okay. Okay. But the version that was floating around, the version that was used or read or memorized, certainly by most Jews around the empire and all Christians in the first decades of the Christian church, the version of the Old Testament that they read was the Septuagint because they couldn't read Hebrew. They read Greek. Mm -hmm. And so the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament and the Greek 27, 46 books of the Greek Old Testament and the 27 books of the Greek New Testament became the Bible. Okay in the early centuries or the early decades of Christianity, right? Important thing to think here is that for the average Christian living in the decades after Jesus, after Peter and Paul and James and John and the age of the apostles and Pentecost, what we would might think of as the Bible within 50 years was the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament that contained 46 books and the agreed 27 Greek books of the New Testament, that was the Bible. Okay. It wasn't even translated into Latin for hundreds of years after that. Okay. So in the early centuries of the church, the Bible was in Greek. So it was, it was purposely put into a common language, right? Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, you know, the Holy Spirit worked through whatever, but yeah, it yeah. was, it was translated 250 BC, the in, into Greek. And then the New Testament writers, when they wanted to write the gospels, the epistles wrote in the language of the day, which was Greek. Right. So really there wasn't a Latin version of right. the Bible uh, until for hundreds of years. If you ask, what did Christians read in the year 90, the year 110, the year 150, the year 200, the year 225, what did Christians read. They read 46 books of the Old Testament in Greek, and they read 27 books of the New Testament. So now the 27 books of the New Testament were already recognized as as the important writings by that time then. Yeah, like, right. I mean, so I don't want to get bogged down in the New Testament because this this episode is really about the Old Testament. That's the area of dispute. Okay. Right. So maybe another time we'll talk about that. But how did they come to recognize the New Testament? That's really, I think, another episode. Sure, that's fine. But essentially, you know, Peter and Paul are writing epistles and people are writing things right. and, and they're gathered together and there's a sort of a consensus about which ones, yep. but okay. that's a whole nother story. Okay. The, the point I want to make here is that neither Catholics nor, nor Protestants nor Greek Orthodox, nobody disputes 27 books in the New Testament. Okay. The issue is how many books are in the Old Testament. Right. Okay. And the point I'm trying to make is that At the time of Jesus and the apostles and in the first centuries of the church, there were 46 books in the Old Testament because they were using the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Okay. All right. You with me? Now, to this day, okay, to this day, the Old Testaments of all of the, what I will call the ancient churches, the churches that trace their lineage back to the first century. So the Roman Catholic, the Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Rite churches in Syria, all of these ancient churches that trace their, their yep. lineage, their roots, their, their history back to the age of the apostles. All of them 
include 46 books in their Old Testament because that was the Old Testament of the ancient world, okay? So let me put it this way. Three quarters of the world's Christians and all of the churches and denominations that trace their roots back to the first century age of the apostles have recognized those 46 books as canonical since 250 years before Christ. But 500, relatively recently, 500 years ago, Protestants decided to drop seven Old Testament books from the canon. So their Old Testaments only have 39 instead of 46 books. And since then, since the Protestant Reformation, these seven books have become known as the deuterocanonical books or the second canon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, they were just the canon. The right. second canon, right. they were just the canon. They were just part of the Old Testament and had been since 250, you know, yep. BC. Now, with all of that being said, all of that ex explanation, and in my mind, everything I've said now are basically indisputable facts. I think that the question is incorrectly framed. It shouldn't be, why are Catholic Bibles different? It should be, why are Protestant Bibles different? <laughs> yeah. So if all of the Christians from the time of Pentecost onward and three quarters of the Christian churches in the world for 2000 years and for really a couple hundred years before that have all recognized 46 books in the Old Testament, why do Protestants have only 39, right? This comes from a sort of American evangelical perspective that says the default is evangelical Protestantism is right. the, the, yeah. the, the default assumption and Catholics and all these other weird Greek Orthodox denominations, weird denominations where, you know, they have funny hats and everything. Right. And, you know, they've all added books to the Old Testament, which, which betrays this like massive historical, historical ignorance. Right. Be because to this day, go to the Greek Orthodox churches, go to the Syrian churches, go to the churches in India that were founded by the Apostle Thomas, go around, right? All right. the ancient churches, yeah. 46 books in the Old Testament. Go to and walk into an American evangelical church, 39 books in the New Testament. So, but the American evangelical will tell you Catholics added extra books. So, hey, Protestants, you got some splaining to do. Okay, so we're gonna, I'm going to try to explain because I came out of that world, right? right? I was a Protestant. I was an evangelical. I was told when I was in campus ministry and campus crusade university that the Catholics, the Catholic Bible is suspect because it added extra books into it. Right. I, I went to seminary and I had to learn from the first day I was there how to read the Old Testament in Hebrew and Greek. Yep. And I was taught by all my Old Testament professors that the canon is 39 books and the Catholics, these seven deuterocanonical books are suspect and everything else. So mm -hmm. I get how it got this way, right. but my perspective changed because I could personally no longer sustain that argument. It always right. bothered me from the moment that somebody, I began to understand what was going on. I went, wait a minute. It seems like we're the burden of proof is on us as yeah. Protestants. The burden of proof isn't on the rest of the world and the rest of the Christian world for the last 2000 years right. to sort of defend itself. The burden of proof is on us to defend our position. Right. Yeah. So let me, let me try to explain that. Okay. okay. And let me just say to anybody who's listening uh, in the last 500 years, oceans of ink and barrels of pixels and terabytes right. of video have been spilt over this issue. Okay, in two seconds on Google, you can find Protestants defending why their old, their old Testaments only have 39 books, attacking the Deuterocanonical books. I mean, I could spend probably three episodes getting into the, the weeds on this and the nitty gritty. Okay. Right. Um, but this is a podcast episode. It's not a, a scholarly book and I'm not going to do that. I'm just right. going to try to give the, the 30,000 foot big picture. Yep. If you really want to drill down, we can, you know, you can drill down, but I want to, I want to hit the, the, the broad strokes here. Okay. Okay. So in general terms, what are these seven Old Testament books that the Protestants yanked out? Here's the list. The book of Tobit, the book of Judith, the book of Baruch, the book of Sirach, the first book of Maccabees and the second book of Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, the book of wisdom, and some additional paragraphs in Esther and Daniel. Oh. So the Protestant Bibles pulled some paragraphs or an extra chapter or so out of Esther and Daniel. 
Oh, okay. I have a thought about that, but maybe I'll save it for the end. Okay. Now, note that all of those are in these books called the writings. Remember I said that there's the law in the Old Testament, there's the law, the right. prophets, and the writings. So there's no addition to the law here. Right. And there's no additions to the prophets or subtractions. To, actually, you're talking about additions. For the Protestants, they didn't pull out anything of the law and they didn't pull out anything of the, the prophets. It was a, a few of these books in the, the you know, right. classification right. of the writings. And here's the thing. The one thing that all of those deuterocanonical books have in common is that at the time of Jesus, they were relatively recent. So in other words, when I say relatively recent, I mean, they had been written in the years between 400 BC and 150 BC. Okay. Okay. So they basically described events or believe that God had spoken during the years, the 300s BC, the 200s BC, beginning of the 100s BC, describing some events or being written in that period. And, um, and that's what they all have in common. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. Now what I've just done in the last 15 minutes is try to explain the situation. Right. Now let me try to unravel it. So in order to unravel it, I want to lay out what I think are three indisputable facts. I would go back in a time machine to my Protestant, you know, pastor self. Right. And I, would challenge my Protestant pastor self in a time machine to dispute these three facts. So here are the three facts. Number one, over a period of about 1,400 years, so roughly from 1,300 BC, Mm -hmm. the time of Moses, to almost 180, Mm -hmm. Jews and Christians produced hundreds of scrolls and letters containing history, law, prophecy, poetry, songs, instructions, on and on and on. Okay? They were written by dozens or hundreds of authors, some whose names we know and some whose names we don't know. And these authors were diverse, different backgrounds, education, roles within society. They wrote from locations over a wide swath of the ancient world from as far away as modern Iran to modern Italy. Okay. So over 1400 years, hundreds of authors producing hundreds of scrolls and letters, diverse and written in multiple languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Okay. All right. That's point one. I think that's an indisputable fact. Indisputable fact. Number two, as an article of faith, both Jews and Christians believe that some of these writings were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, right. and some were not, right? So, in fact, St. Peter, the head of the apostles, rock upon whom Jesus built the church, says in Second Peter 1, 20 through 21, in the New Testament, the undisputed New Testament, right? right? Second Peter 1, 21, Peter says, no prophecy of scripture that is a, is a matter of personal interpretation for no prophecy ever came through human will, but rather human beings moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. Right? That's an article of faith. Right. So hundreds and hundreds of documents, some were inspired right. by the Holy Spirit to be written yep. and contained the words of the Holy Spirit spoken through the Holy Author, through, through a human author, and some were not. Were not. Okay? Which brings me to indisputable fact, indisputable fact three. Over the centuries, some of these scrolls were determined to be authentically inspired and they were gathered and bundled into a compilation called the Bible. Right. Okay. This is what's called the canon, C-A-N-O-N, the canon of scripture. And those books, the ones that were divinely inspired and authentic, are considered canonical. The others that were rejected are considered to be non-canonical. Right. Right? Does that all make sense? Sure. Hundreds of documents. Some are canonical, some aren't. So that leads me to five questions. Those three facts lead me to five questions that I think get to the heart of this whole matter. Okay. Okay? And I'm working up to this. So here's the five questions, and then we can go through these. 
Number one, of these hundreds of scrolls and letters, which of them were truly inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore have divine authority and should be included in the Bible as canonical and which not? Question one, Mm -hmm. right? Question two, more important question, who has or had the authority to make those decisions? Who gets to decide what the canon of scripture is or who had the authority to make the canon of scripture? And I'll tell you right now, this is the central issue. Yeah. Yeah, Right? I see that. I mean, in other words, if, if Pastor Bob is free to pick and choose which books of the Bible he thinks are authentic and which aren't, or if somebody comes along to say and says, hey, I want to include some new books in the Bible... Right. or subtract some old books, right? Somebody has to have some authority to declare what is the canon of scripture right. or not. That's, that's the central question. Right. Question three, on what basis do they make those decisions? So in other words, do you say, hey, I have a theology, right? And let's pick something. Let's pick something controversial. Right. Let's suppose that you are pro-same-sex marriage and you're pro-blah-blah-blah, right. blah, what, right? Right. And so you decide that any book that seems to say something contrary to that must therefore not be authentically scripture. Right. Because you know, you've decided that that is true. You've decided that God is uh, for the rainbow agenda. And so any book that speaks against it must therefore not be authentic and can be subtracted from the Bible. And if somebody comes along and writes a new book that they purport to be from the Holy Spirit that is pro-LGBTQ, can you include that in the Bible? Right? So you have to have a criteria for this, okay? So question one, which books are inspired and canonical and which aren't? Question two, who gets to decide that? Question three, what is the basis for deciding that? Question four, are those decisions final? So, okay, following up on that, is the canon of scripture closed? Can you, can books be added or subtracted from it at this point or at any point? And then five, would, and this is, I think, a crucial question. Would the Holy Spirit allow canonical chaos? Would the Holy Spirit allow for his people to be, to spend hundreds or thousands of years deceived and in doubt about the authority in the canon of scripture. Right. Well, the Holy Spirit go, you know what? I'm going to include, a, 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 allow people to operate for thousands of years with fake books in the Bible. Right. And have chaos until somebody comes along and changes it. Yeah. I mean, is, do you think that's the character of God? Is that the character of the God at Pentecost? Right. So based on everything that I've said up until now, why did the Protestants pull those seven books out of the Bible? And, and here's why they did that. Now, at the time of the Reformation, the reformers wanted to get away from Rome and they wanted to get away from the Latin translation of the Bible. And they wanted to translate the Bibles from the original Greek and Hebrew, produce new translations. Right. Because the Greek translation had been rendered in Latin and for a very, very long time, the Latin translation had been used. There were some attempts to make some translations into English or French or, you know, Spanish or Germanic or whatever. But the reformers were into translating the Bible into the vernacular for the people from the original language. So with the New Testament, there was no dispute. You could go back to the Greek and translate Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whatever. Right. From Greek into French, English, German. Right. Right. But what do you do about the, New, or the Old Testament? Because do you operate from that Greek Old Testament that we talked about, the Septuagint, right. with the 46 books that was accepted at the time of Jesus? Or do you try to go back earlier and find the original Hebrew books and translate those into German, French, English? And the Reformers wanted to go back to the original texts. They didn't want to go back to the Greek Septuagint. They wanted to go back to the Hebrew. Here's the problem. Where, if you are John Calvin or Martin Luther, do you get a book of the Hebrew scriptures? In Hebrew. Right. Well, you go to a Jewish rabbi. You go find what the Jews are reading. Right. At the time. Okay? Right. So, in Europe, there's communities of Jews. Right. Rabbis have 
their version of the Hebrew scriptures. You go to them and you learn to read that and you translate from that. Here's the problem. The Hebrews at the time of the reformers, the late Middle Ages, are using a version of the Hebrew scriptures that do not have those seven books in them. Hmm. Why is that? Well, after Jesus' death and resurrection in around the year AD 30, 31, 33, however you date it, but 40 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed, destroyed by the Romans. Okay, the siege okay. of Jerusalem. Uh, the Romans utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. Yep. Jesus had prophesied this. The temple was destroyed brick by brick and has never been rebuilt. The only thing that remains of it is one little retaining wall called the Wailing Wall and you go to Jerusalem and that's all that's left. And the Jews were scattered in the diaspora Mm -hmm. throughout the Roman Empire. Okay? Yep. So there were communities of Jews that in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus, had been scattered. Judaism was broken. The temple was broken. And a movement began in Judaism among the rabbis to kind of go back to their own sources. For lack of a better word, it almost might be called a sort of Jewish fundamentalism. Sure. Okay. To turn back to the ancient ways, turn back to the ancient sources, turn back to Hebrew. And what they began to be suspicious and distrustful of and everything else is any of the Greek or Roman influences on Judaism that had crept in in the centuries before Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because Alexander the Great had conquered uh, the Middle East. He had brought the Greek language and Greek culture, right? Right. And then the Romans came through. And these rabbis in around the year 100 AD and following that were in the diaspora started to say, you know what? We want to go back before the Greeks and Romans came in and basically ruined everything. Right. And they also wanted to reject the Septuagint because the Christians were using the Septuagint. Right, right. Right? Remember what I've said yeah. in this whole yeah. podcast, this whole episode, is that this was the Old Testament for the early Christians. It's the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And the Jewish rabbis, this sort of reactionary fundamentalist Jew- Judaism that crops up around the year 100 AD, says... We, we, we just want to reject anything to do with the Septuagint, anything to do that the Christians are touching. We want to go back in this sort of Jewish fundamentalism to the old Hebrew texts. Right. And so those seven books, remember I right. in the right. in the centuries after Alexander the Great had conquered the, the Middle East, and some of them, like First and Second Maccabees, were written in Greek. Okay? Right, right. So... The Jews compiled a version of what we would call the Old Testament in Hebrew, and they, in a sense, pulled out those seven books because they considered them to sell those books to be tainted by the centuries leading up to Jesus and tainted by the Christians because the Christians used them. Then they began to write them down in Hebrew and calligraphy and all this kind of stuff. They pass them around and fast forward all the way up to the year 1500 when Martin Luther and John Calvin come along. They go to the Jewish rabbis and say, give us the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Jewish rabbis hand them a Hebrew Old Testament that is essentially a fundamentalist Hebrew Old Testament that rejected the Old Testament as understood by the early Christians. Right. Right. And the Luther, Calvin, the reformers and Protestants today accept that as authentic as the book of the Jews. Okay. Yeah. Because this is the Old Testament of the Jews, even though what it really is, is the Old Testament of the Jews after the time of Christ. Right. The Old Testament of the Jews after Pentecost, the Old Testament of the Jews after the fall of the, the, the temple, the destruction of the temple. Yeah. Okay. So what they're, they're accepting is a sort of latter, late Judaism, a post-Christian right. Judaism. Right. And they decide that's now. Remember I said that the critical question here is authority. Yeah. Okay. So here's the question. Who had authority to determine what the canon of scripture should be? And you have a choice. On the one hand, you can say, 
the people, the, the individuals who had the authority to determine the canon of scripture were the apostles. Because, right, Jesus picked his 12 apostles. He gave them power to found the church, the great right. commission. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends, the church is born. So in a sense, by, you know, by the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had descended on the church, which is the new Israel. And those apostles, right, right. who in a sense become the, the, the 12, the, the leaders of the new tribes of Israel. Right. You know, Peter, Paul, James, John, the rest right. of them. They are, in a sense, the elders of the new Israel. Right. And, for, and they, they affirmed the 46 books of the Septuagint. Do they have the authority to determine that? Or do you believe that the authority to determine the canon of Scripture lies with Jewish rabbis in the year 100, 200, 400, 500 in Eastern Europe? Yeah. Who, who had rejected Christ and were, were explicitly trying to reject the Bible of the Christians. Right. And had this sort of fundamentalist uh, right. version of the Old Testament. And it's a weird, for me, it seems really weird that any Christian would say, and I, this is why it became indefensible for me. It becomes really weird, I think, for any Christian to say, uh, Jewish rabbis in 180, 280, 580 living in the Ukraine or parts of Europe, right. that the Holy Spirit gave them the, the power to determine the canon right. of scripture, not yeah. the apostles yeah. empowered by Pentecost and the early church Yep, and the leaders of the early church. I mean, you know, as, as soon as I say that, as soon as that occurred to me as a Protestant pastor, I went, this is indefensible. Right. Right, like, like, like theologically, I go, well, why, why would I think that the Holy Spirit says, no, Peter, Paul, James, John, and their successors don't have the power to determine the canon of Scripture. That belongs to a bunch of Jewish rabbis right. in the late empire, early Middle Ages, living in scattered parts yeah. of the empire. That just seems weird to me. Yeah. And, and in terms of who has the power to determine the canon of Scripture going forward, it seems to me that the, the canon of Scripture was sealed in the age of the apostles. So, so you, 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 know, you can't come along and say there's a new gospel, or there's right. a new letter, or there's a new whatever. Uh, th- that, to me, is, was fixed by the church fathers, the age of the apostles, the consensus of the early church, and then not invented at the <clears throat> Council of Rome in 385, right. but recognized and right. signed, sealed, and delivered what had been, you know, already uh, agreed to for hundreds of years prior to that. Yeah. Now, my friends, I, during that time, and my friends who are Protestant pastors and scholars, evangelicals, they, they rebel against the notion of church authority. I mean, that's what yeah. it means to be Protestant, to protest sure. yeah. authority. So you say, well, some bishops in 385 got together with the Pope, and then again in Ephesus and four whatever, and then in whatever, who are they? What we have is scholars who have read lots of books and delved into this and learned Hebrew. But the central point here is that you're reading a Hebrew text. And for those of you who do go down this rabbit hole, that Hebrew text that Luther, Calvin, and the rest, it was called the Masoretic text. It is a version of the Old Testament in Hebrew by the Masoretes, which were a group of Jewish rabbis in the early Middle Ages, yep. hundreds of years after Jesus, that compiled and transmitted this. The first version we have of the Masoretic text is from 800 A.D., uh, eight or 900 AD. And so this is basically a medieval, a work of the medieval Jewish rabbis. Right. And the first day that I got to seminary, the very first day we started our first Hebrew class and I had to go to the college bookstore and buy a copy of the Masoretic text in Hebrew and learn to read it. And we were like, man, we're immersed in this is the right. book of the Jews. Right. It was no one, it never was pointed out to me that even if it is the work of the medieval rabbis, the important question here is, what is the Bible of Peter, Paul, James, and John right. and the early church? Because they had the power given to them by Christ as apostles to found the church. They had the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So if anybody determines the canon of scripture, right. it's, it's the apostles and the church, yep. not 
not Jewish rabbis writing a sort of anti-Christian yeah. version of the Old Testament. And uh, in fact, what's interesting, like there's a little you know, side things you know here. In the Masoretic text, there are tweaks in the Masoretic text to so- sort of soften and weaken the prophecies about Christ. So the famous oh, prophecy in Isaiah that a virgin will conceive right. in the Septuagint, that, that Greek version of the Old Testament that goes back to 250 BC, right. it says a virgin will conceive. In the Masoretic Hebrew version, right, compiled in the early Middle Ages, it says a young woman will conceive. And Protestants use this all the time to argue against the Virgin Mary. They'll go, no, 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 no. The Hebrew says a young woman will conceive. Right. That's what the Hebrew says. Catholics are mistranslating it to make it, you know, right. the virginity of, you know, perpetual right. virginity of Mary. And you go, right. But the, the Septuagint, the version of the Old Testament that the apostles knew and that the early church affirmed that actually is <clears throat> older than that Hebrew Masoretic text. I mean, older by 500 years, right. compiled 250 BC. That version of Isaiah says a virgin. In Greek. Right. So you get into these disputes about which Greek and Hebrew text. But what I want the listener to know is at the end of the day, I think this comes down to a very simple question. Who has the authority or had the authority to decide the canon of scripture? Yeah. And it seems to me the only legitimate authority was the apostles handed down to their successors and the church under the influence of, of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and subsequently. And the argument that we should be reading, in a sense, outside that and assuming that extra Christian sources, i.e. Jewish rabbis in the Middle Ages, have the Holy Spirit given power to determine the canon of Scripture over and against uh, the church is to me a rejection of the church. And if you're going to go down that path, then why not go all the way down the path and reject the New Testament? Uh, right. Right? Because those rabbis, those same rabbis who compiled the Masoretic text rejected the New Testament. So what you're saying is, well, they're wrong about everything, about Jesus yeah. and everything, but they're right about this. So I, I do think, a, like I said, all of the ancient churches, all of the churches that trace their roots, their lineage, their history back to the generation of the apostles. So, you know, believe it or not, whatever, the Roman Catholic Church traces its history back to, well, Peter in Rome, right? The first pope. Um, Paul, who dies in Rome, if you trace your roots back to all the, you know, the Eastern Orthodox churches with the, with the uh, founded by the apostles around the Eastern, you know, right. Roman Empire, all of the Syriac and Eastern Rite churches, you know, um, founded by the apostles who spread the gospel, right. all of the churches, three quarters of the Christian denominations and churches in the world today have agreed on the Old Testament for 2000 years. It is only... Protestants relatively recently in history yeah. that have cut these seven books out. So the, the argument that the Catholics have added books to the Bible, I think is right. framed completely wrong. The question is why have Protestants rejected the old Testament of the ages? Here's what I see. This is a big, big picture thing. Here's God working his plan of salvation. Here's he's working out the redemption of mankind and he's doing it through the Jews all the way up until the time of Christ, that's the plan, okay? And then it changes, okay? It changes, and the new plan, the whole thing takes a right turn, and now it's the New Testament, it's the gospel. It's Jesus and as the Messiah and so forth, all the things. That, well, I, I, I wanna, what I would say is I, I agree with what you're saying. I would just say it a little differently. The plan didn't change. It was always God's plan. No, I, that's what I meant. But, but, but I yeah. mean, at least at the human level, yeah. it seems to go in a new direction. Well, his, it's okay. the new wineskins. Yes, his plan was always to do this. And when right. Jesus came, God's plan moved this way. Okay? Right. Whatever way. I mean, and then... The Jews, who didn't go along with it, stopped moving with the plan. Mm-hmm. They stopped. They 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 went. They they took a, a separate path. Okay. Yeah. So here they are, a uh, hundred years later. This group of Jewish rabbis, who no longer, God is no longer speaking 
to them or through them. God is doing a new thing. He's doing his new thing now, and it's Christianity. And that that just, okay, so just that alone um, uh, strips, to me, strips them of their authority. Right. To, I mean, to, the, the entire thrust of, of, of Christianity, or really the entire thrust of the gospel and the New Testament, is that the church is the new Israel. Yes. Right? So yeah. there's the old Israel. Right. And, you know, when we talked about earlier about the temple being destroyed, you know, this is where Jesus says, as he comes in on uh, Palm Sunday, right. you know, and he weeps and says, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, not a stone, you know, will be left, uh, you know, unturned, right? Uh, destruction will come upon, you know, Israel right. and they'll be scattered. And in 70 AD, that was fulfilled. And at Pentecost, what happened was the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church became the new Israel. Yeah. And the authority of scripture and canon was given to the church. And so, like, by default, one has to say, I believe, as a Christian, that the church has the authority to decide that, as you say, not uh, uh, rabbis living under the old covenant. And for my Protestant friends who would say, well, 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 you know, we're the church too. It's just our scholarship takes us in other directions. I, I, I still say at the end of the day that I rest on the authority of the apostles. The apostles and the early churches used these books. They're six, right. They gathered them, the consensus. Again, we come back to this whole thing about the Council of Rome in 385 and the councils you know, at Ephesus and, and so on and so forth. And and for any Protestants, because I don't listen to church councils, you go, remember, these are the exact same councils that, for example, affirm the 27 books of the New Testament. So if you want to throw stones at the Council of right. Rome in 385, that it had no authority to determine the books of the Old Testament, then what authority did it have to determine the books of the New Testament, right? They gathered right. and said there's 27 in the New, 46 in the Old, and you can't take half of their decision. The, right. the other thing is, is that, you know, it was those councils that determined things like the Trinity and the nature of Christ and all of those things. And so you can't say, you know, what you will get is some, some uh, Protestants will say, well, they'll, they'll take one or two church fathers and they'll cherry pick a couple of quotes from a church fathers like Jerome who will say, well, you know, this completely ignoring the fact that that's part of the process. In other words, during the age of the church fathers, all of these different competing books and scrolls were debated, uh, argued right. over, prayed over, debated and argued over right. some more. And, and in that process, they came to consensus. And those same Protestants will take someone like like St. Jerome and say, well, St. Jerome in one of his writings asks some questions about one of the Deuterocanonical books. You go, okay, so are now you saying St. Jerome is authoritative? Because he also wrote about the Virgin Mary. Well, he was wrong about the Virgin Mary, but he was right about this. And it just becomes a cherry picking. I mean, either you accept the teachings of the ancient church and the ancient churches as authoritative with respect to the books of the New Testament, with respect to the authentic gospels, with respect to the person and nature of Christ. Um, And and then it seems to me a a small thing to say, and they accepted 46 books of the Old Testament, rather than deciding that the ancient churches and the apostles and the councils had, you can cherry pick their authority. Well, they were right about this, but wrong about this, and right about this, and wrong about this. And that's really what the reformers did, uh, Luther and Calvin. I mean, Luther, for example, thought that the book of James should be excluded from the New Testament because it contradicted, it seemed to contradict his uh, theology on works versus faith. How very Protestant to decide that you know better, okay, Uh, and and to ignore. Okay, so 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 um, the dudes in 100 AD they they chose to ignore what was commonly accepted by the Jews and the Septuagint all the way up until then. But no, 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 I, you know, we us these these 12 guys in the room, we know better than everybody else, right? Then we go fast forward, and here's uh, Martin Luther saying, "Well, no, you know what? I I think I know better," and that's and 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 it's. Um, his theology right. and John Calvin's theology drove 
what they removed, uh, uh, not the other way around. Their theology was not driven by what was written there. Their theology, their theology drove what they considered to be correct. The right, right. And I think it, this episode is getting super, super long, so we're going to land it. But this is a okay. great place to land it because uh, well, I'm, I'm going to throw this out as a cryptic comment, and then it's just going to open up like the floodgates to say, now right. we have to have another episode to follow up on my comment. But uh, when I look at the madness uh, of today, the chaos, doctrinal yep. chaos of, say their name, uh, a listener who wrote in and said, you know, like the LGBTQ doctrines are totally confusing to me and right. churches picking and choosing what they believe and don't believe and this and that, what scriptures they affirm and don't affirm or what passages of scripture they recognize and don't recognize. Uh, what I would say is the seeds of all of that uh, were planted in this Protestant notion of we can go back and 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 pick apart and cherry pick the authority right. of the early church. We can go back and decide that certain books of the Bible uh, don't meet our criteria. Right. We can sort of come up with our own version of it. And, you know, you can say, well, they did that, you know, only with these seven books, but they, they established a principle. And the yes. principle is that is that Protestant scholarship or supposed Protestant scholarship and research gives one new research, new scholarship gives one the right to toss out the decisions right. of the ancient church. Yep. And so therefore you, you planted seeds that are coming to full bloom now where you say, well, before it was just rejecting the book of Maccabees. Now right. it's rejecting the writings of Paul about Right, you know this, or it's right. rejecting, you know, whatever. And now yeah. we're 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 weirdly constructing new gospels based on new right. scholarship. Yeah. So, you know, the seeds of our, our destruction there. And in the end, I think the, the decision, you know, for me when I was considering Catholicism is to turn back to Holy Mother Church, the the authority of of the apostles, given once and for all uh, yeah. for the ages. Yep. I love it. Amen. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.